Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I will be speaking with Reed Kroloff, former editor-in-chief of Architecture Magazine and the current dean of the Illinois Institute of Technology College of Architecture, about the interplay between message and medium in design. We will explore the craft of visual storytelling and the ways to forge powerful connections between creators and their audiences. With illuminating insights and real-world experience, Kroloff demonstrates how the clear communication of design ideas has the power to shape and transform our interconnected world. But before I begin the conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Reed Kroloff, as I stated, is the Dean of the Illinois Institute of Technology's College of Architecture. In a career spanning more than 25 years, he has also served as the Editor-in-Chief of Architecture, which under his direction became the nation's leading architectural magazine. He has also been the Dean of the Tulane University School of Architecture, which he led through Hurricane Katrina and the following recovery, and also served as the Director of the famed Cranebook Cranbrook Academy of Art and Art Museum. A regular national commentator on architecture and design, Kroloff has authored writing that has appeared in such publications as the New York Times, Esquire Magazine, and Metropolis. He has also appeared in a number of television programs for such networks as PBS and the Sundance Channel. In addition to his esteemed career in academia, he's also a partner of Jones Kroloff, with clients who have included the High Line in New York City, the Whitney Museum of American Art, Yale University, and even the federal government of Mexico, just to name a few. He's the recipient of numerous awards, including the prestigious Rome Prize, and his work has been exhibited throughout the globe, um, probably most um notably at the Venice Biennale. Reed, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me today on On Cities. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you very much. I don't even recognize that guy you were just describing. <laughs> um, Reed, I oftentimes begin by asking my guests about their formative years, because I'm curious to know if those experiences shaped um, your thoughts about cities or the built environment. So, Reed, could you tell us where you grew up and how those early experiences may have shaped your thinking about the world? Sure. Um, I'm a child that had a fairly peripatetic um uh I'm an adult who had a fairly peripatetic childhood. Uh I'm I'm actually a third generation native of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and um we lived in the San Francisco area for a number of years when I was young as well. And then we moved to Texas uh, when I was uh 12 years old. Uh and we lived in Waco, Texas, uh, and Corpus Christi, Texas. So it was really uh <laughs> it wasn't exactly the most um glamorous set of places but it did in it did have a huge influence on me and the the most immediate one was that um, although i was a little boy in san in the san francisco area we were down in the suburbs and phoenix is basically one giant agglomeration of suburbs uh even waco texas is very spread out and corpus christi even more so um, and they all drove me to want to live in a place where you didn't have to be in a car to get from place to place. I have nothing against cars. I love them. I love driving them. They're a lot of fun. Um, but I do have a real problem with cities where that where you can only encounter other people if you climb into one and go find them. It, that that's 
for me, very problematic. So I've always wanted to live in cities that had a walking culture. And subsequent to um, college, I mostly have lived in those kinds of cities. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very important observation. And one, of course, that uh, continues to get a lot of, of attention today with ideas like the 15-minute city and uh, people speaking about um so the on both ends, right? On the one hand, the right to the car, and then those advocating to, for the 15-minute city are talking about, well, the right to walk, and what about other ways to move around the city and to build community? So I find it really interesting that your early years, um, you were in environments maybe that are the complete antithesis, right, of the places that you chose to lead maybe your 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 adult life. Um, Absolutely. So. It's very hard to defend those places in 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 many ways. I, I know there are people for whom living a suburban life, a, a medium to large size house on a big piece of land, so maybe your family can uh, play in the yard and you know those sorts of things uh, can be wonderful. But as we've watched even those kinds of structures deteriorate, um, uh, urban structures deteriorate, people not playing in their front yards, only in their backyards and being very careful because of a, a different kind of world. Um, it, to my mind, pulls one of the intellectual rugs out from underneath the argument for making those kinds of cities. I now live in a in a 15-minute city. I'm 15 minutes or less from everything. Uh, Chicago, though enormous, and though surrounded by vast suburbs, also has a middle uh, a large middle where you can live a 15 minute life. I'm 11 minutes from my, uh, from the L stop that I go to, to take the train to IIT. And I'm 12 minutes from two different grocery stores. Um, I'm 15 minutes. My partner is 11 minutes, um, from his office. Uh, we are 15 minutes from the art museum. Um, we're four minutes from the museum of contemporary art. We are one minute from the lake. Um, so there, you know, it's, I don't know, it depends, everybody looks at different kinds of things. Where's the restaurant, where's the grocery store, where, you know, where's the museum. Um, but we have every, we have all of it within 15 minutes mm. or we can get in a car and drive out and see something. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, we'll probably delve a, a little bit more into that, uh, uh, in this conversation, but before getting there, um, you received a BA from Yale university and this educational experience seems to have set up a foundation for what I would consider a rich and varied career. Um, but when in speaking with individuals, I believe that no one arrives at any level of success without teachers and mentors. And so I was curious to know uh, what you think were the greatest lessons that you learned during your time um, in school or your time at Yale. Uh, well, uh, um, my time at Yale, uh, uh, Yale was when I was there, a, a, a tremendous place to be a student, not the best place in the world to live. New Haven was a city with a lot of troubles. It remains a city with a lot of troubles. Um, uh, and Yale neither helped that very much nor contributed to solutions for that. At the time when I was there, it's a little, it's a little bit better as a public citizen now than it was then. Um, but there was one, there, there were a series of teachers uh, that were fantastic, but one who was uh, at that time as my undergraduate um, uh, years, who was just critically influential and changed the, the direction of my life. And that was the very renowned architectural historian, Vincent Scully, who uh, taught in his later years uh, after he retired from Yale at the University of Miami, where you might have encountered him. Um, not only a great scholar uh, uh, of architecture, but a masterful teacher, one of one of the greatest that I can even imagine. And I remember as a student thinking, I was in love with the subject matter. I, I just couldn't believe there was something as interesting as architecture and urbanism. And then I realized I was in love with the way the guy taught it. He was captivating, just absolutely mesmerizing. And he was a trickster too. He he knew how to be manipulative um, in every kind of way uh, that a good lecturer can be. He could just pick you up and set you down and make you laugh and make you cry. And he knew he was doing it. He knew very well he was doing it and played on it to the hilt. And I found myself just every bit as much in love with that, not because I not only because it appealed to my own natural tendencies to be a little hammy, um, but uh, because it was 
um, it was so amazing to watch him seduce so many people who had no knowledge about architecture and really, truly no interest. They were just in there because they, they needed an elective. And when they left, they became advocates for this profession uh, and this, not just this profession, advocates for this discipline, this, this world uh, uh, that architecture is, even if they had no intention of practicing it, they, they too had become absolutely devotees of the notion that we can live in a better built environment. And, and Vince made that happen from scratch. He was a magician where that was concerned. And I thought immediately at that time, I want to be able to do that. I want yeah. to be able, because I felt just as passionately, I, I think I felt as passionately as he did. I think we all, all of us, 400 people in the lecture hall felt that we were as passionate as Vince. And, um, and I decided I wanted to try and do that. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. I had the good fortune of being a student in his classroom and then later working alongside his wife and co-authoring a book. And I would just share that um, he was probably in his 80s at the time. And I remember stepping into a small um, kind of villa that they lived right near the university and watching him at the age of 82, a formidable instructor, as you have described him sort of really uh, debating which one of the slides he was going to show a freshman. And, and at that moment, I, I was just in awe because I realized that he was just, of course, a formidable intellect, but also a dedicated teacher up until the end. And every lecture for him was starting anew as though it had been the first time he had done it. And and I think in listening to your description of him, um, I'm reminded of not just the power of his intellect, but his ability to stir emotion, which I think is something that we oftentimes forget. And really emotion is what allows us to make really meaningful changes in the world. So it's something that teachers out there shouldn't forget. Um, so th thank you uh, for sharing Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, he was he was an amazing, amazing fellow, a, a rare, a rare person. And Indeed. I've always uh, in the I've spent about half my career in academia and about half my career outside of academia. And uh, while in it, I've always encouraged students to to pursue their education in, in a way that I didn't discover until I was a junior. Uh, and so I, I lost a little time on this. It doesn't matter what your subject is. Take the best teacher. Find the faculty member who's just going to inspire you. You could study accounting with an with an inspiring instructor, and the numbers will spin through your head like a symphony. You know, and um, if if that's what it is that you like, or you don't even know that you like, but you know that that woman is the most amazing accounting professor ever in history, go take her class. Go take a class in biophysics. Go take a class in architecture. Take a class in 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 uh, you know art. You know whatever it is. That's the way to get educated, because if you're inspired by someone, you're going to do more than you would otherwise. It, it, Absolutely. It, I, I continue to give students that advice wherever I can. Absolutely. Well, uh, turning, I mean, again, as I mentioned earlier, you've had a rich and varied career and you served as the editor in chief of Architecture Magazine, which under your direction, the magazine received more awards for editorial and design excellence than any magazine of its type quickly becoming the nation's leading design publication. Um, Reed, what, what do you think were the key elements um, that led to that success? The key elements that led to that success were twofold, or maybe threefold, sorry. The first is actually another professor. Um, the other great influence in, in my life, if Vince was the one who turned me to architecture, there's a man named Lawrence Speck, Larry Speck, who was the dean at the University of Texas at Austin and is an active practicing architect in Austin to this day, still a member of that faculty. And Larry Speck was the other side of Vincent Scully. If Vincent Scully was all showman and, and great researcher, Larry Speck never put on a show uh, or he put on a much more subtle show. Um, and, and the show was just his gentlemanly, elegantly elegant way of being in the world and putting you at the center of the universe. He inverted it. So instead of Vince being the center and you were just always in his wake and, and happy to be there, in, in Larry's world, the, the camera turned and it was always him right behind you 
always pushing somehow. And I never quite understood how he could stand in a room of 300 people and be the uncle to all of them and and move them forward and push them forward and find their way, help them find their way. And and um, I wanted to leave architecture school at the end of the first year. I just thought I was doing terribly. And I went to see Larry and said, Larry, I just got to go. I'm, I'm failing this school. You know, I, I'm not performing. And he said, Reed, the school is failing you if you feel, if that's how you feel. We are the ones falling short. You have these skills and talents and this profession needs them. And we're going to find a way to make those happen. And he did. He was starting a journal, a, a university collegiate journal of architecture. And he said, you're going to come work on this journal with me and a group of other students, and we're going to put it out. And we did. And it was very good. And of all of them, there were probably 15, 20 architectural journals at that time. It's one of only two or three that remain, um, uh, including the one from uh, Yale and a couple of others. But uh, Center was just a fantastic thing. And it launched that. It, it, moved, it made me realize that there was a part of my life that that was going to be about writing. Um, and Larry gave me my first writing opportunity and Larry kept me in school and Larry put me on all these committees and Larry came to every review and Larry pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. And he kept me in architecture school and he followed me out of architecture school and helped me get a first job and a second job and a third job. And he was always there when I needed something. And he's just one of those people that you have to hope you encounter. You have to hope you encounter a Larry Speck in your life. And not everybody does. And so I have been the luckiest guy in the world in my career. And it started an education between these two types of people who inspired and supported me and directed me. And, um, and so the magazine is born from my experience with Larry Speck. Um, the second is the magazine is born out of my experience with its art director, a woman named Lisa Naftalin, who I hired just after I became the editor-in-chief I became the editor-in-chief 18 months after I became the assistant editor. It was very fast. And the editor-in-chief at the time, uh, who, when I got there, was a woman who'd been there for many, many years, and she had worked her way up at a time when women just were not in that field. Um, and she had she had achieved something quite remarkable um, in doing that. She wasn't the world's best person for dealing with people, but she was a great teacher in writing, how to, learning how to write and learning how and learning how to get a story, but she didn't, she didn't teach you much how to run about how to run the magazine. And suddenly I was running the magazine and I didn't know what I was doing. And Lisa Naftalin was an art director. Um, she still is an art director, um, but at the time she was doing work for the New York times and we hired her um, at the, at, at architecture. And she just taught me everything that I needed to know and did it in a very direct, calm uh business-like fashion. She was amazing. Um, and, and more than anybody else, she put uh, a stamp on that magazine and helped me put a stamp on that magazine that defined it, um, which was, uh, which I'll get to in a minute. And the third um, was a group of people that I worked with on that staff, on that, on that magazine. We assembled an amazing group of people uh, to run it. And all of them have gone on to great success. Um, I think of my close friend, Ned Kramer, um, who is now part of Jones Kroloff, which is actually now Kramer Kroloff, um, who went on to be the editor-in-chief of Architect magazine um, for, I don't know, 12 years or something, longer than I was the editor-in-chief, um, and and others like him, um, who've just gone on to really great careers. Jake Ward, who's now a, a national news guy on NBC, I think, um, all of these people who came through. So it's always about the people that you meet ever and over and over again. It's about the people that enable you to do the sorts of things. The publisher uh, that, that I had, the, the Deborah Patton, the woman who ran our marketing and development. I mean, just uh, Craig Reese was the publisher, just amazing folks, amazing folks. So I'm, I'm lucky to meet these incredible people, but I'll say this about the magazine. Two quick things. One, we determined right away, right away, that the magazine was going to change the way magazines worked, architectural magazines, which were always the same. A photograph of a building squarely on the cover, some meaningless headline about that building, 
And then you'd get inside and it was just endless pages about professional practice issues that no one was, you know, how to detail this bathroom thing or that stair, ta- that stair hall. Not that that stuff's not important. It is important, but it's not what you lead with. It's not the center of the profession. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the, the, the thing that motivates people to be an architect. And we wanted the, the magazine to be about those motivators, about, about those larger ideas. So we banned buildings from the cover. We now, we only one in, in the six, five years, five years that I was at energy, we had one building on the cover one time. Um, and meanwhile, competitors, you know, very, very dutifully putting buildings on the cover, right? Ours were always ideas, always questions about larger ideas. So we wanted the magazine to be idea driven and we worked by a maxim and we didn't invent this maxim. Actually, this came from my publisher, Craig Reese, which was, he said to me, he asked me, read, what do you, you know, what do you want this magazine to be? And I said, I want this to be the magazine people think they need to read. And he said, no, you don't. You do not want to be the magazine people think they need to read. You want to be the magazine people think they want to read. And it's a subtle distinction, right? If you need to read it, it's a duty. It's a burden. If you want to read it, it's a pleasure. And it's something you're going to do every time you get a chance to do. And so we adapted that maxim that we were the magazine people wanted to read. And we were, we became that magazine spiky, feisty, outspoken. We got a lot of angry letters to the editor and a lot of happy letters to the editor circulation shot up. I mean, it was, it was really a heady period for them. You know, I'm, I think you're a um, skillful communicator in a variety of medium, which is not easy in, in architecture. Um, or just in general, I would say. But it seems to me that the platforms for communication today, they've really been magnified. I mean, well beyond, let's say, the print journal that we were just talking about. Um, And so I was curious, how do you feel that designers can become savvier at communicating their message more clearly in an increasingly cluttered digital world? It's really challenging. Just in the last 20 years that I've been in this involved in all of this it has changed so much um uh, even i just say in the last 10 years uh it, it 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 the the speed of the change has increased markedly the the probably the most difficult well sorry let me back up and say it was always difficult architects struggled to get uh at a time when the magazines uh of which at the at its height there were three or four were the main communicative vehicle, even if they were each publishing five or six buildings a month, there were three, mostly three of them. That's 15 buildings a month. That's 180 buildings a year in a country that built thousands of buildings in a year. And so it was a real struggle for architects to find themselves in these publications. And and they were often frustrated. Uh, There were a half a dozen newspaper critics who were writing too, but they were dominantly local. So if you didn't live in Chicago, Blair Cayman probably wasn't writing about your building. If you didn't live in you know, whichever city, uh, Phoenix, when I was the critic in Phoenix, you know, you weren't, you weren't in the newspaper. So it was, it was, it was a challenge. Today, it's the other side. Rather than a situation of scarcity, it's a situation of overabundance. There are so many opportunities and so many sources um, that it's it's a it's a it's a bewildering welter of choices and it for architects trying to to find themselves in front of audiences it's it's difficult even sometimes to wonder where you should be so it's it's uh, in one way it's easier things like arc daily you just send the stuff to them and I don't know what they use to to determine which of the thousands of buildings they must get every day, um, how to make that choice. Um, but it's just them choosing, and there's no editorial content to it other than the, than the architect themselves provide. Then there's the other side, the the remaining um, selective presses. There's still an architectural record, which is in this country really the only kind of big architectural publication and sorry, Metropolis, but Metropolis is really a multi-disciplinary magazine. It's not just architecture. Um, architect still exists, but in a much reduced form. 
Um, and so it's, it's, that's much, you know, that's diminished there are very few newspaper critics left, um, in the country. And so that's gone away. So you have both, um, both scarcity and, and plenty, and it's difficult for people to, to know where to go, but, uh, I'm sorry, that was a long and winding answer. Um, let me just try and get directly to what you asked. What do architects need to do? Um, they need to do a couple of things. They need to choose where they think they're going to get the response that they want to get. So are they communicating to architects? Are they communicating to clients? Um, those are different kinds of media, and you want to direct your efforts to those med- to the medium that makes sense for you. Um, and then the second, is you have to learn to communicate effectively. And effective communication is not generally, though it can be, advertising. Um, and so when you're writing about your work, it it can't just be you spouting off about how brilliant it is. And it's a, it's a little disturbing to know how many architects in the world think that that's the right way to do it. You're trying to communicate to other people. You're not just talking about yourself. And any writer will tell you that you've got to be offering them something that with which they can identify, whether they're angry about it and disagree with you, or whether they see themselves in a story and therefore are you know encouraged to read on. You have to have a relationship with your intended reader, with your intended consumer. And it has to be a direct one. It has to be a thoughtful, knowledgeable, pre-considered one. Um, And your writing and your communications, some are visual, some are written, um, need to be responsive to that set of conditions. Yeah, I mean, I think those are uh, very powerful thoughts because ultimately being a good communicator, I think, is a key um, to success. And you have to communicate to many individuals in many different ways as a designer, but really just in general as a professional. So we're coming to the middle of the uh, of the show. And so we're going to take a quick break. But when I return, I'm going to continue my conversation with uh, Reed Kroloff. We're going to continue our conversation about message and medium and the power to communicate through design. So do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Reed Krolov. And right before the break, we were talking about the plethora of communication mediums that we have today to communicate our messages as designers. Um, And so maybe we could follow up on that because when I think about the world of communication and I think about design in general, I think about these digital platforms like Instagram and Pinterest and And I was curious to know how you think um, maybe these platforms have changed the culture of design and architecture, maybe both in the classroom and in the practice, because in a way you straddle both those worlds. Sure. Uh, To me, the question on on Pinterest or or any Instagram, any of them, is really an issue of intergenerational uh, communication, because they are very much the the media of a younger generation uh that doesn't mean um people my age don't or can't use them but it means that younger generations use them much more dominantly and consider them a, a first source of information whereas i would never consider them a first source of information just by their very nature um uh, uh instagram being just photographic mostly just photographing or being very 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 short um, pieces of, uh, of, of writing. And, um, and I prefer something longer. Um, but, um, when I'm talking to my students, this is, this is where they go. So the question for me, uh, for architects is how do you approach each of the various media? What it, it's a little bit like I was saying a minute ago about who you're communicating. That's one question: who you're communicating to? Right? Am I talking to a client? Am I talking to another architect? These media sources not only um, communicate to certain kinds of audiences more than others, um, but it's how they communicate to them. Right? It's not just here's 900 words. You don't get 900 words on Instagram. It wouldn't have the name Instagram if you got 900 words. So how do I learn to master the short form writing? Um, which audience am I chasing through Instagram uh, that I, that I want to communicate with? What kind of thing that I do as a designer is Instagram the appropriate meth- uh, media medium Excuse me for? And uh, that just points out that the the communications environment is more complicated. You 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 have to ask yourself not only what do I want to get my message out, but how and which is the right platform and when and and who should do this, and who's on it and and how long does it last and and what's what is the implication if I say something on that and six months later I I change my mind, so uh, it, it 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 goes back back to me always to the same question what are you trying to get across and to whom and that these these media and they change regularly how long have we had instagram a minute and how long will we have instagram i don't know but probably not all that long given its competitors so uh you really have to learn to learn about that environment and how to use it mm-hmm. Yeah, you're currently, in addition, um, obviously, to we've been talking about your role as an editor um, for architecture, of course, but you've also had a long and prolific career as an administrator um, in academia. So we talked about your deanship at Tulane and also at Cranbrook, but you're currently the dean of the Illinois Institute of Technology. Uh, And I was curious, in that role as the kind of leader of the school, what would you say is your most important message to your students and faculty? The most important message to students is not necessarily the same one as it is to faculty, um, uh, but it probably should be. And that is that you are here because you have a rare gift for being able to see the world differently than folks who are not in architecture and design. You can see the world. You can you analyze the world differently. You literally look at it differently th- than people who are not in this field. And as such, 
you have the responsibility not only to try and be the best designer that you can be, but to help people understand what it is that you see and why that why that is important. Why did someone propose the 15-minute city? Because they actually looked at the city geographically, they saw it in their mind's eye and had a way to try and describe that verbally to people. They could see that there is a geographic reality to how we can live in cities that makes it that make them intelligible and useful to us. Now, how do I describe that to a group of people? In that case, with a very pithy headline, 15-minute city, right? Three words. Writing epigrammatically, which is the art of writing headlines, very, very short phrases that are packed with imagery uh, in that phrase isn't is a gift not everybody can do that and um and it's hard work people who do advertising and sloganeering it looks like to the general world that's nothing but every one of those words is freighted with so much you have to freight them with so much information so 15 minute city is you just think of all kinds of things as soon as you hear that so when i'm talking to students or to the faculty i i want to encourage them to take that to take that ability to see and be able to communicate it through drawings through writing through models to a world that doesn't see it and not because they're not capable it's that their attention is on other things if i'm a doctor my attention is on saving my, or improving the life of my patient not on what whether a hallway being 8 inches wider or narrower can make a big difference um, to how I can take a gurney through a hospital. Um, but that's not, doesn't make that eight inches any less important. And, and the architect and designer have to be ready for that eight inches. Hmm. I actually came across one of your design initiatives at the school entitled Vertical Urbanism. And I, I was curious about it. So could you share the focus of that program with our listeners? Absolutely. It's the newest master's degree program um, at um, Illinois Institute of Technology, otherwise known as IIT, um, to the broader architectural world. Um, the Master of Tall Buildings and Vertical Urbanism is the first master's degree offered in the United States. We don't know if it's in the world, but we know there aren't very many um, uh, to focus on tall buildings as an urban, as as a centralizing object and moment in urban design and how important they are. Um, if you look around the world, you know, the last 50 years has been the story of human urbanization, right? We've moved to cities um, and we've moved to cities in vast numbers and we are continuing to move to cities in vast numbers all around the world. And because land has value, we're going to continue to drive ourselves up we're going to continue to drive ourselves vertically. And this is, th that raises all kinds of questions about resource allocation, um, about uh, equity, uh, about design, uh, about urbanism. And this degree program brings all of those things together. There are a lot of, hard, there are a lot of tall buildings being built, and a lot of them are terrible. A lot of them are very ill-considered. Um, and they're blighting their environments. They're making them. They're making them much worse than they were before those buildings were built. Uh, and this degree asks the question. It's why it has the title "Vertical Urbanism." Asks the question: How can we use this as a build this as a tool? How can we use this building type as a tool for making better cities? And we do it in conjunction um, with um, the uh, CTBUH. Um, which is the world's authority on tall buildings. They happen to be here in Chicago and Anthony Wood, who runs uh, the Council for Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat. Uh, Anthony Wood, who runs it, is the person who runs that program at IIT. And he's been teaching with us for um, almost 20 years. And, um, and so this just made a ton of sense. Also, Chicago invented the tall building. Um, and the most important innovations in tall building design have all come out of Chicago, both in architectural and engineering um, uh, points of view. And so it just made sense for us to do that IIT, and we're really, really excited. This is our first year. Mm, interesting. And so I, I would imagine, or, or maybe I should ask, that most of the areas that you will concentrate on would be, let's say, denser urban environments uh, where these types of buildings would probably make the most sense. Would that be the case? 
Absolutely. And it, and it is a, and a very international program. Um, it's got an advisory council and a set of people who help us teach in it, who truly come from all around the world. And they're not all architects, though it has a very distinguished list of architects involved in it. Um, it also has a very distinguished list of developers and a distinguished list of contractors and a distinguished list of governmental people. Um, it's, it is in purposefully, very intentionally interdisciplinary because there is no such thing as just an architect throwing up a 50-story building. That just never happens. And not only does the architect not do it by her or himself. Uh, they have teams in their offices, but they have massive structures that support any one of those decisions. And we want the kids in that program, the people in that program, sorry, to understand um, that the, all of those influences, where, whatever the direction that they come from, whether they're capital or whether they're physical uh, or whether they're governmental, um, all of those shape our buildings, uh, our, particularly our tall buildings. And um, we wanted to be a, a program that was holistic in looking at those issues. It's not just about the design of tall buildings, what's the prettiest one, though IIT has a 75-year history of working on elegant tall buildings. The Hancock Building got its, its working with the amazing folks at Skidmore Owings and Merrill, got a lot of its starts at IIT. Sears was also the same. Um, and um, uh, the, we have a great relationship with Skidmore Owings and Merrill. They have a, a, a studio they teach. Um, we've we've been very, very lucky to have a, a many decades long relationship with that firm. And it does lots of the world's most important tall buildings, but they're not the only ones. They're, they're one of hundreds of firms doing these and and we've got uh we've got tremendous relationships with really the leaders in firms that look at tall buildings from all around the world fantastic well parallel to this successful academic career you're also the principal and founder of is it Kramer Krolov? It's now Kramer Krolov. Yes, it has a okay. new design strategies, which is a very unique advisory practice. So, um, Reed, could you tell us about the work of your firm? Sure. Um, Jones Krolov started out uh, initially as a firm that um, began to uh, advise people on uh, how to uh, select architects and landscape architects for their projects. And um, over the years, uh, it it also we were also involved in design competitions um, and uh, to a degree, uh, and um, and then a, a fair amount of educational opportunities as well, uh, including things like uh, designing and helping to put together a television program for the Sundance Channel on um, on the future of cities. So uh, it's a it's a multidisciplinary advisory. Um, um, uh, firm, uh, but the majority of the work we do is to help primarily institutional, not exclusively, but primarily institutional and commercial uh, clients find the designers that um, uh, are most appropriate for their work. And that's done by helping them understand what the project is that they're doing. Um, a lot of them think that they've got a really clear idea. Um, some of them don't think that they have a clear idea and come to us to help do what we would call pre-programming work um, and then help them uh, identify a list of architects and select from that list uh, our landscape architects or urbanists. Um, to create projects. And we've been very lucky um, to work on some really marvelous projects ranging from the High Line and the Whitney, the High Line in New York and the Whitney Museum in New York to the, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the uh, National Library of Mexico, uh, the National AIDS Memorial in San Francisco, um, work for a bunch of different universities. Uh, we, we've been, we've had a a great time and uh and i'm delighted unfortunately casey jones my partner um is now a principal at perkins and will and um so really can't be in the firm um and so i'm working with my friend ned kramer um uh, who is one of the smartest human beings on the planet and also is someone who had uh, a, much like we we were together at architecture magazine um when he was he started as an assistant editor there as well and then and ended up being the senior editor and then ultimately went on to be editor-in-chief of architect uh, magazine and uh, ned and i uh 
bring similar experience uh, of a very broad view of the profession um, to the table. And so I'm very happy to be working with him as well. So if I understand it correctly, you act um, like a bridge in essence, um, where you are, uh, your clients are are not predominantly architects, is what I'm understanding, right? They're most those that are searching for architects. So um, you're essentially providing uh, a service of allowing, you know, these various institutions to make the critical selections necessary. So you, you act as a kind of, uh, you act to pair individuals or, or, or to connect individuals. You're, I guess what Malcolm Gladwell would call the, the connector, right? You're. <laughs> yes. Yes. We are the connectors. That's exactly right. And we do tend not to work with architects so that we can represent them neutrally. Um, but we ha- we also do provide some advising services to some architectural practices. But when we do, they are they cannot be part of the selections that we're running. Um, and we have a period, a trailing period. They can't be in a selection for several years after we stop consulting with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've had some uh, just amazing experiences uh, in uh, with clients, really astounding clients. Um, uh, that you learn so much from, uh, starting with the with the uh, the very first project, which was a museum for Motown, um, and um, getting to work with Barry Gordy, uh, the founder of Motown, who is just a force. He's just had <laughs> a remarkable amount of energy in a relatively small package, um, and um, and then on to people like the 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 minister of culture of Mexico, a woman who. I don't think she has a speed lower than a hundred miles an hour. I, I've rarely met anyone who moves as fast as her, and uh, and is as smart. Um, it, it it's just a string of amazing uh, clients and the and the and the wonderful architects that they hire um, uh, ultimately on these projects, and some of them actually get built, which is great. Yes, yes, that's harder. Harder said than done, right? Um, in your experience, which again, I find to be particularly unique, what would you say are, are some common mistakes that designers make when they're launching a practice? I mean, maybe specifically architects um, make. And and then I guess as a follow-up, what advice would you have for young designers that are thinking about launching a practice? Um, I would have lots of different advice at different times. Of course. Um, and it, it has to, a lot to do with the circumstances. But I would say to young designers in general, don't be fearful. Launch that practice. Um, if if you are passionate and you are thoughtful and you actually have something to say, right? It's It's one thing to be passionate about eating at a restaurant that I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about passion that's born from deep study and clear understanding of a subject matter and, and, and uh, a strong belief that you can add something to that. Um, That comes from experience. Uh, I say, go uh, do it. Uh, Those, your chances of success in a very competitive business um, are much higher then simply, oh, I got a project from an arch- you know, from a client. I think I'm going to start my own firm. That's that's not the reason to start your own firm. It it's a good thing to have when you're starting your own firm, but it isn't it isn't the generative idea. Um, and it passionate doesn't mean you have to be reinventing the wheel. I'm going to do architecture differently than everybody other every other person in the world. No. You don't have to. You can do architecture the same way that everybody, that that the majority of people do architecture. You just have to have an idea and a belief in yourself and what it is that you do in architecture that brings the client something that they would want to find you about. There's a lot of other architects out there. So what is it about you that actually makes it different? Is it something about your design? Is it something about your client services? Uh, is it something about um, uh, your your philosophy of practice? There's a lot of ways in to that equation. And you don't have to just necessarily be an architect in a traditional role. I gave that up when I was 32. I haven't done a building since I was 32 years old and I, I haven't suffered. I've had a great time. Yeah, so Lots of ways in to this profession. Lots Indeed. of ways. 
Indeed. And I think many times those in school or those studying architecture forget that. So I think that's an important reminder. So we're in the last couple of minutes uh, of the interview. And so I always end by asking my guest, what is your favorite city and why? So (laughs) Reid, do you have a favorite city? And if so, why? Well, I think my favorite city in the United States would have to either would probably be New York or Chicago. Um, They're different. And I like them for different reasons on different days um, and at different times. But uh, there's nothing more majestic than sailing down Lakeshore Drive and or better uh, flying up the lake uh, on your way to land at O'Hare and seeing that powerful city stretching out along the waterfront, just resplendent against the blue of, of the lake and the and the glittering of the sun. It's uh, it's it moves you. It just moves you. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, coming into New York City, you know, from LaGuardia Airport, if you're coming from that side, and you just you're perpendicular to the whole stretch of Manhattan and that that set of buildings. It, there's nothing like it in the world. Nothing. Uh, or coming up from the south, from New Jersey, where the the world, the whatever the Freedom Tower looks like, it's only ten stories tall, and then suddenly it just reveals itself as this monster, um, and all of Manhattan around it. And living in that city, walking everywhere, same in Chicago, the, the intensity of culture. And the intensity of ideas. At the end of the day, these are cities that are full of ideas banging into each other in one way or another, whether it's architecture or politics or food. They're they're just colliding and they're marvelous. And that's why I love them. Well, as a native New Yorker, I'm not going to disagree. And I just want to thank you, Reed, for taking time out of your busy schedule for um, for your passion and your dedication to both the teaching and practice of architecture. Um, it's been a pleasure to be able to connect with you. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Hel Soholt, uh, the CEO and founder of Gell Architects. We're going to talk to her about cities uh, designed first and foremost for people. So do not miss that conversation. Uh, I'll see you all next Friday. Thanks again, Reed. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 